Welcome to the Cruciform Life Church podcast, featuring the weekly sermons from our Sunday gathering. Please visit us online at www.cruciformlifechurch.org for more information. Now open your Bibles with me and let's spend the rest of our time today studying and digging into God's Word. Genesis 14, we will be reading the whole chapter. And even in the reading of the Word of the Lord, may the Lord illumine our hearts and we begin to see uh, God in this chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis 14, starting from verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Aryok, king of Ilazar, Kidarlomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Guem, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they have served Kedarlomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year of Kedarlomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Enim in Shavikiriathim, and the Horites in, the, in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Meshpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Azazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Kedarlomer, with Kedarlomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Aryok, king of Elazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumens. Bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. He also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possession, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the ox of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ishkol and of Honor. These were allies of Abraham. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Don. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot, 
with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Gidarlomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God the Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and the earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Our gracious Heavenly Father, a God who is faithful of, to His promises, a, a God found you, a fountain of blessings, bounty in all your ways, lavish in your grace and lavish in your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that not only that you have given all these blessings towards us, but you have guaranteed these blessings through your Son. Lord, bless the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. We will be looking at this passage, and uh, we will be looking at two things today, the guarantor and the promises of God. Basically, what we will be seeing in this passage today, the guarantor and the promises of God. When we talk about guarantee or a guarantor, it is as old as the time of Abraham. Early on, we, later on, we see that in Genesis chapter 38, that Judah has to give his staff and this signet ring uh, to serve as a pledge that he would pay Tamar, who acted out as a prostitute, as a prostitute, so that Tamar would be assured that he would be paying what he promised, and that is a goat. So it is as old as that. Today, um, for average families, when you talk about inheritance, many times it is through verbal. Uh, to whom is the house given? To whom are these properties would be left? For the more rich people, and they have so many things, and there we have the will of testament. The will of testament would serve as a guarantee that after the person would die, the, inherit the, the heir would inherit everything that he has. So guarantee or a pledge is part and parcel of our lives, whether formal or informal. Now, I started that today because in this passage, we understand how important is this guarantee. How important it is that, that we have a guarantor that all these promises of God would be fully ours, will be 
fully fulfilled by by God which calls us because we already have that guarantor that's the Lord Jesus Christ then we ought to express that our faith that, that we would experience these promises of God even in this lifetime if we respond in faith so how would we respond to our life challenges especially right now that we are in this pandemic and to some of us we find ourselves you know just running from it and we may even ask ourselves do we even have to face these challenges right before us or we can just instinct instinctively run from it like we do not face our problems now none of us none of us would want to face challenges it is not our instinct where we love to face challenges and problems in life running from them might forfeit us of some of life's most wonderful blessings that these promises of god would somehow come to life would be alive in our lives if if we continue to just respond in faith to our circumstances so this pandemic that we are facing right now our situation in life right now is is putting us into a situation where we can respond in faith and and see how these promises of god would you know would happen in our lives chapter 14 here of the book of genesis is somehow deba debated to be just an insertion in the book of genesis like it's it's just inserted there many said that this has disrupted the flow of the narrative the flow of the story many are saying that that it's hard to see the the point of this passage many wondered how these would even fit in to the progression of the story how can we make sense of this chapter what is the message of genesis 14 for example and how does genesis 14 fits in to the overall message of the book of genesis these are few of the questions that we as students of the book of genesis would have to ask what we find here in genesis 14 especially in verses 1 down to verse 12 we read of kings that we are not given any background at all any background at all and it also mentions some places like tidal and elam sorry elasar that even researchers could not even trace anymore what what these places were but we do not have to linger into these details i think moses when he did not give us details of this it is because that is the the main thing that is not it helps to see the point that we should not be sidetracked by those by those things however it is very important because it will set us up into this conflict into this conflict where abraham responded in faith and it led to the display of the promises of god in the life of abraham kidar lumer 
king of Elam, was clearly in power at this time. You see that one in verse 4. He has been reigning over several cities. And of course, he had his eastern, so you might think of it as eastern kings and western kings. So his, he had his alliances with eastern kings. Amraphel, king of Shinar, that's Babylon actually. Aryok, king of Elizar. Elizar is an unknown place, just as Goem is an unknown place, but we've read there, Tidal, king of Goem. We just also know that in the 13th year of the reign of Kidar Lumer, that's in verse 4, that the kings of the West, that the kings of the West rebelled. Kings of, of the West here are also being mentioned. Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemeber, Bela. You can read all of that in verse 2. They rebelled. But just to paint what was happening here, Kidarlumer and his allies were still conquering cities if you read verses 5 to 7. In verses 5 to 7, we read how they were still conquering cities after cities. Sidarlumer was still in power. He was a powerful king at the time. Kidarlumer, king of Elam. Now, Genesis 14, 8 to 10, I would like to read this. It says, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Kidarlumer, so against, so th these were the western kings, and they were coming into battle in the valley of Sidim with the eastern kings, Kidarlumer, king of Elam, Tedal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Aryo, king of Ilazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidem was full of bitumen pits, so these are not small pits, these are big pits where they were somehow making some form of asphalt. They were full of bitumen pits, and as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. Now obviously it's not the king of Sodom, because later on the king of Sodom is still alive. So they were people, many of their people, fell into these bitumen pits. And of course, they were killed, presumably. And the rest fled to the hill country. So, look at that. Even here, in this battle, Kidarlumer and his allies still won. These eastern kings, once again, defeated these western kings who rebelled against the reign of Kidarlumer. So it proves that at this time, they were still very powerful. They were reigning until, and I think this is the mistake, is some, so, so to speak, this is the mistake of Kidarlumer, or their kid, although Kidarlumer was really a good king, no one can stand him, he seemed to be very good in battle. His one mistake, his one mistake here would be to bring Lot 
his people and his possessions with him. That was his one mistake. Abraham would not have gotten into the picture. He might be unconcerned of the situation of this battle. Abraham would mind his own business in his own house. But when he brought Lot with him, Abraham's nephew, then somehow Kidarlomer brought curse upon himself. But I want to take note here in verse 12 that Lot was taken by the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah. Sorry, with the king of Sodom and, and Gomorrah. He was taken. And I want to have a sidebar there. Because notice carefully that verse 12 tells us that Lot, so yet last week we said he was trying to just live on the periphery of the land of Canaan, right beside Sodom. But here in chapter 14, verse 12, that he was actually, actually dwelling in Sodom. In verse 12. He was with the world. And if we yoke ourselves with the world, it's a picture there. If you yoke yourselves with the world, then you will also experience the world's trouble. Obviously, Lot went there. He does not have anything to do with these battles. But because he chose to live in Sodom, then the trouble of Sodom fell on him as well. And I just have make it a sidebar because if we, you know, yoke ourselves with the world, I'm not saying we could not do business. That's not our point. But yoke ourselves with the world today means we also love these things. We fall into the same sin that the world is guilty of, we can, the, the trouble of the world can also be experienced by us. Just a warning for us, church. But with the abduction of Lot, Lot was abducted, Abraham was informed. We read in verse 13, it says, Then one man had, who had escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the ox of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Ishkol and of Aner. So these were the allies of Abraham. But Abraham was informed about this abduction of Lot. So Abraham was placed into this situation. What will he do? Will he come and rescue Lot? And we have to understand the, the situation here. When, if he would choose to rescue Lot, he would be fighting against great kings. Kings like Kidorlomer, who have been reigning over these cities for over 14 years. It speaks of how powerful Kidorlomer was. And still, at this time, He was still defeating cities. So Abraham was faced with that. And clearly, clearly it, it was God's will for him to run after his, and rescue his nephew Lot. But what would we do in this situation like this? Difficult situation. Do we also face some difficult situation where we know what God, that God wants us to act in faith? But many times in, in unbelief, we refuse to do so. And, and this is what we have to be careful of as a church. 
The Lord has been opening opportunities for us. For example, Baros is going on. Batangas is starting up. Northern Samar is overwhelmed with these opportunities. So looking at all these opportunities that the Lord has opened to us, we can retreat and say, well, we cannot do this. We are in a time of pandemic. We have our own situations right before us. We are, we are going through difficulties in a lot of matters like finances. Uh, it is wise for us to just focus on our own local church. But is it possible that God calls us to trust Him? As individuals, we can find ourselves refusing what God has called us to do because many times we see, I'm so inadequate to do this. I'm so inadequate to do this. And we would rather stay where we are most comfortable. But look at the situation of Abraham here. If you are in the place of Abraham, this is a difficult situation. But unlike us, Abraham responded in faith. Abraham acted out of faith. Faith can be displayed in varieties of ways, depending on the situation. Our trust in the Lord can be displayed in variety of ways. In chapter 13, Abraham displayed his trust in God by being passive. The situation calls him to let Lot decide. And in that way, Abraham displayed his faith. But in chapter 14 here, he displayed it by actively rescuing Lot. So let's get this first church. When we talk about displaying our faith, many times it depends upon our situation. There are times that we have to wait, patiently wait. In some sense, we, are, we would be like Abraham, passively waiting for God. But there are also situations that we could not be passive, but display our faith but by actively obeying God. And I wonder, where are you right now? Does your situation call you to display your faith by passively waiting for God? You're not supposed to do a saying. You're not supposed to change the course of your life, but just wait upon the Lord. Or does your situation call you to actively do what God has called you to do? Whatever it is, God is always calling us to respond in trust and obedience to Him. God always calls us to respond in faith. So as we respond in faith, like Abraham, as he responded in faith, as he acted out of faith in God, what can situations in life display? What can it lead us to? What, what are the things that we can possibly see if we just, if we just respond by trusting God displayed in our obedience to Him. We'd like to draw out two things from the story here in Genesis 14. First, how situations in life could display the promises of God. How situations in life could possibly lead us to see the promises of God in His Word, now seeing it in our lives. Here, we see that this faith-led action to rescue Lot led to the 
defeat of Kidar Lumar and his allies. And of course, the rescue of Lot. And we will see later on the beauty of this. So there is beauty, isn't it? A difficult situation, we don't like it. Life challenges, we don't like it. But it can lead us to see God's faithfulness to His Word. God's faithfulness to His blessings. To His promises. Now Abraham came out victoriously. Verses 14 to 16 narrates it to us. He came out victoriously, practically, look at that, practically against kings. Against kings. Kenneth Matthews wrote, The outcome of the war is the defeat of Sodom involving the capture of Lot, which, what this victory of Kidarlomer, establishes the military setting for the growing stature of Abraham as a formidable figure in the region. In other words, this is a surprise to them. Abraham's victory surely caught everyone by surprise. Where did this group come from? Who is this Abraham? Might have been the questions of these kings. We did not see it coming. He did not come out in our intelligence report. It is clear, or it is a clear picture of a rise in power of Abraham in the land. God is beginning to display Abraham in the land of promise. Or at least to these kings, they would begin to know now and notice who is this Abraham. And who would expect this small household? This is a small household in comparison to the cities whom they defeated would emerge victorious over not one, not two, not three, not four, but five well-established kings and cities. These were not really countries. These were small cities. But that is still a city. And the answer to that question is obviously no one. Why would you expect a small household defeating five kings? No one have anticipated this. Talking about a story of how an underdog won at the end. This one would surely be off the chart. Because as I have said, this is about a household and five cities, practically speaking. Or four cities, sorry. Where did Abraham get all this confidence? Was, was Abraham confident because he had 318 men and he has allies with Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner in verse 13? Did he draw his confidence there from his 318 men? And I was thinking 318. What is 318 against his opponents? And as far as the allies of Abraham, Mamre, Eshkol, and Honored, look at that. They were called by their names. They were not called kings. They also had their own households. Where then did Abraham got his confidence? 
when he when he chose to run after these kings was was it just a suicidal bahala na kind of move if only that he could rescue his nephew lot was was that the situation there clearly of course he was moved to do this according to verse 14 it says there when he that's abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive so first thing we have to acknowledge that this move of abram was because of his concern for lot he was concerned he loved lot and like us when when our family members when people whom we love are are placed in a difficult situation we are running to rescue but many times it's the bahala kind of move it's like what's more important to me at this time is that i would do something i don't know what's happening and what will happen he clearly loved lot but i would propose that as a man of faith it was his trust in god that gave him the confidence I think it was not a bahala kind of move, but it was a confident move from Abraham, so to speak. It was his faith in God that gave him the confidence. For the reason why I said that one, in every situation in life as believers, it always put us where our faith will be tested, where our trust in the Lord will be tested. We are always put in a situation where we can respond in unbelief or we can respond in faith and trust in God. Abraham could not have bravely went after these kings if not of his trust in God. Genesis 14 verse 15 to 16, it reads, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Huba, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all possessions and also brought back his kinsman lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So God delivered Abraham's enemies into his hands. As the word of Melchizedek in verse 20. God delivered his enemies into his hands. God surely cared for Abraham. Here, this victory of Abraham is a display of how God cared for Abraham, how God cared for Lot. Later on, God cared for Abraham. He remembered Abraham and took Lot out of Sodom when God rained down fire on Sodom. He, he cared for Abraham and he cared for Lot. And he surely cared for us. As we go through these difficulties in life, God surely cares for us. How many times have we were put into a situation where we thought we could not, there's no way out? Like all doors, we felt like all doors are closed, there's no way out. But after a few days, you realize we're out. God cares for us. We can trust that. And we praise God for such a care towards us. Such is care for us in this time of, of pandemic. But is this all about Abraham? Is God simply caring for Abraham? 
Is there any angle? That, well, well, that is true. Is there any angle as well to this story, aside from the story of the ground, Abraham's story and Lot's story? How does Genesis fit into the developing message of the book of Genesis? Well, we can rightly say God care for Abraham and God care for Lot. We can also rightly say that this story is the display of the partial fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Here we find that the promises God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 is partially displayed. You remember the seven promises of God in Genesis 12? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The seven blessings. We all see it here in Genesis 14. We see that Abraham was, has men already, 318 of them to fight. Abraham was unofficially becoming a nation. He's growing. The victory itself is a fulfillment of God's promise that he would bless Abraham. I will bless you. With this victory, Abraham was making a name. Surely these kings are now saying, wow, this Abraham, Abraham, he is making a name. God is partially fulfilling his promises to Abraham's that Abraham will have a name. Abraham's name will be great. Abraham became a blessing even to Lot and even to the kings. You will be a blessing. Mamre, Eskol, and Aner, who allied with Abraham, somehow were like the ones who blessed Abram. I will bless those who bless you. And in turn, they were blessed. Last verse of verse 24, Abraham told the king of Sodom, let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. I will bless those who bless you. And these kings who captured Lot, were like those who cursed Abraham, or they became a, an enemy of Abraham when they took Lot. They made themselves against enemies of Abraham, and they were defeated because God said he will curse those who will curse Abraham. And the seventh is that God promised that Abraham will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Abraham did not just rescue Lot, but also the five kings delivered those five kings. And in that sense, it's a picture of how he has become a blessing to other nations. So what we find here in Genesis 14, this victory of Abraham, it is like a sample size of what God really intended to do. Genesis 14 shows that God is at work. Like, what happened to the Genesis 12 now? And then we begin to see this. God is at work to fulfill all his promises to Abraham. And I want you to see this observation, church. In Genesis 14, of course, it came after Genesis 15. And Genesis 15, the one that we will be talking next week, will be well God covenanted with Abraham that he would surely give the promised land to him. 
So chapter 14, if you look at the story here, it is like the picture of how God eventually gave the land to Abraham's descendants. Here in Genesis 14, we see that God is able to defeat nations. So then we are given a preview of how God will defeat nations later on to give the promised land to his people. Exactly what happened in the time of Joshua. If the question is how, how can we have this land? And then we see here, this is how God gives you the land. He will defeat nations for you. So what can situation or situations in life show if we respond in faith? It can lead to the display of the promises of God. Very important that we would learn to live life trusting God, trusting in His promises. Not disobey God. As Pastor Japheth said earlier, he is afraid that at this time of pandemic, instead of being sanctified, we are actually running from God and we are sinning against the Lord. This is not the time to sin against God. This is a time to walk faithfully in the path of the Lord so that we would see His promises. This is the theme clearly developed in the book of Genesis. Jacob was anxiously meeting about to meet his brother when the Lord led him to Canaan. He wrestled with God in prayer. Yet in the end, he responded in faith, and it led to him reconciled to Esau, get to see his father before his father Isaac died. But most importantly, he was back at the promised land. There we go again. If you respond in faith, we don't get things that we want. We see how God's faithful. In his promises. We do not have to go through the book of Genesis, everything, but, but just to mention how, how Abraham finally was given his son. Joseph saw this dream coming into reality. We will not have a hard time seeing this theme in the book of Genesis. Responding in faith to life's situation would lead us to see the promises of God in our lives. Responding in faith to life situation, life challenges, can lead us to see the promises of God. That's the beauty of it. This is most especially when, with God's transformation, God's sanctification in our lives, which is the main thing for the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the sight of heaven, we who have not joined the Lord yet. Remember, church, God did not promise that we will conquer lands. A misplaced theology of the prosperity gospel teachers who says, Oh, let's be like Abraham. Let's conquer lands. But if you look at the Old New Testament, we, we understand that for us believers, yes, eventually we'll have the land that would be coming in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, what is promised by God is our sanctification, is our transformation, and we see this over and over in the Scripture. Romans 8, 28-29, we are told, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those 
who are called according to His promises. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul was surely talking about the faith of the Philippians when he said, And I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And after saying that believers should be doers of God's word, here's what James said. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets but the doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And the blessing there primarily is the blessing of sanctification. James 1.25 We don't have time to look at Hebrews 12. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 to 11 or 1 Thessalonians 5.23 to 24. Especially the promise of God here. All of these passages speaks or speak of our sanctification. So if we choose to obey God today, because we trust Him, the main promise is not that we conquer lands, or conquer businesses, or conquer things, or or getting all these things, and we will become the most powerful people in the land. But be more like Christ. At the end, God would still give it when Jesus returned. But right now, in fact, this is the essence. And I hope we will not misinterpret Paul in, in Romans 8.37 when he said, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not more than conquerors because we also conquer lands like Abraham. We will... We are more than conquerors because our situation in life, our difficulties, we don't just simply survive them. We grow through them. We become better people. We become more like Christ through these things if we respond in faith. But yes, yes, not only with our sanctification, but with the practical things that God promised, like our provisions. Matthew. 6, 25 to 33 speaks of that, that he will provide for us. Hebrews 3 verse 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it talks about finances. So yes, not only our transformation. Our transformation is the main thing. But not only that, but even the practical promises of God. So in faith, we should keep on obeying the Lord, church. Keep on obeying the Lord. If we are to see with our own eyes the reality of God's promises, we should keep on obeying Him in faith. Having said that, though, I wonder, how often is it for us to wait for the promises of God, yet would not in faith obey God? How often is that? Like, as a student, a student cannot rejoice how God is faithful to his studies if in the first place, he is cheating. In our businesses, if we are compromising in the first place, how can we really see the promises of God? Or how can a father claim or stand on the promises of God, on the grace for his children, if in the first place, he never intentionally seek to lead his children in the instructions of the Lord? 
In other words, my point is that if we are to experience these promises of God, this are experience in the path of obedience. If we are to see ourselves transformed, the main promise, keep on obeying. Keep on obeying. As James insisted, that if we are doers of God's word, we will be blessed in our doing. If you want to see the provision of God, keep on obeying Matthew 6.33. And we do it not only when life is easy, but most especially when life is challenging. When life is challenging. So responding in faith, Abraham saw God's promises coming to life. A sample size of what Seven promises, so to speak, that we find in Genesis chapter 12. And while it is already a confirmation of God's faithfulness to his promises, the next scene, what we will be looking at, verses 17 to 24, leads to a greater guarantee of these promises. We will now look at the meeting of Abraham, of this strange figure, very strange figure, whose origin was a mystery. And besides, after this meeting, it was never mentioned again in the book of Genesis until Psalm 110. And then it will jump to Hebrews 7. Just like that, he was gone. So Abraham had this meeting with Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ. And this is a very important thing to see. So the second one, what can... Difficult situations in life display. We look at the second one, how situations in life can lead us to the guarantor of God's promises. Can lead us to the guarantor of God's promises. Genesis 14, 17 to 24, we read of two kings. Two kings who met Abraham after his victory. I think that's the only similarity of Melchizedek and, and uh, the king of Sodom, that they met Abraham. The rest are contrast. And Abraham's action towards them are also very contrasting. In verse 17, the king of Sodom was to meet Abraham in the king's valley. Well, it's the right place to meet because this is a meeting of kings. Particularly, they seem to represent kings of two kingdoms. Kingdoms of, kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. At this point, though, in verse 17, we will wonder how Bera, king of Sodom, would respond to the victory that Abraham has given him. And surely, after Abraham brought back your people to you and your possessions, at least he got he get to thank Abraham. But it is not quite what happened, isn't it? Verse 21, we read, And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Let's dissect this a little. Because we asked the question, so why did Abraham insist not to receive anything from him? There's something that is wrong in those words 
of the king of Sodom, aside from the fact that he, we know that King Sodom and Gomorrah was known as great seed, Sodom, particularly great sinners. Chapter 12 and verse 13. Or chapter 13 and verse 13. So let's dissect this a little. What I see here is that he seems to have claimed rights over his people and possessions. Take note of his word, give me. It is important to notice that because it is in contrast to Melchizedek's words, blessed be Abram. So the first word that came into his mouth is give me. Well, well Melchizedek's first words are blessed be Abraham. And every time a person would say give me, it would already hint us that there is nothing important to this person but himself. The king of Sodom seemed to say, all these are mine, my people, my goods. And you know what, Abraham? This is a win-win situation. I will take my people and you can take my goods. He practically lost things and Abraham restored it to him. It should have at least humbled the king of Sodom and thank Abraham. He seemed to be still very proud. I'm the king of Sodom. So this surely gave Abraham a window to the soul of this man, to the soul of this king, and a reason to say no to his offer as he probably knew that people like this one, like the king of Sodom, would always want the glory. If God said, my glory, I will not give to another, Abraham is like saying here, glory will go to God alone. And not on the king of Sodom nor anyone else. Verse 22 to 24, look at the re reply of Abraham. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal or anything that is yours. What do you mean by that, Abraham? Well, the last part of verse 23, he said, I will take nothing, not a strap, not a, not a shoelace. That's probably not a thread. That's probably the smallest thing of no value at all at that time. So Abraham is saying, not even things that have no value, I will not take anything from you. Well, you can give the men the, what they ate. That's fine. Let honor Eshkol and Mamre take their share. But as for me, I would not take even a thread or a sandal or anything that is yours. I will take nothing. Now why? And this is odd, this action of Abraham, because somehow he received some favor from the king of Egypt. And later on in, in Abimelech, I think Genesis 21, he seemed to receive favor from them. It is not that he could not receive anything from anyone, because a person who could not receive anything from anyone might be acting out of pride. But Abraham was not acting out of pride. He refused because he did not want anyone to receive any glory from what he has become but God alone. This is beautiful because it displays to us the Abraham's passion. And the passion of Abraham 
is to glorify God. People who understand that they're enjoying the blessings of God would have no other passion but to glorify, worship, and honor God. Abram's heart to glorify God alone here reveals to us that the blessings he received from God were but instruments that led him deeper into God, his real treasure. Abraham did not rejoice to the experience of the promises of God alone, but he rejoiced all the more because it deepened his knowledge of God as a covenant-keeping God. This is his passion. He wants to glorify God. The heart whose real treasure is God. The heart whose real treasure is God will only glorify God the more when he receives blessing from God. We realize Abraham, for Abraham to say, no, I would not take anything, is like saying, what are things in comparison to God? I'm not here to gain things. God has given me a lot already. I'm here to glorify God. This is Abraham's passion. And we hope that our Blessings will only lead us to see our passion to glorify God. What, what does the blessing, by the way, in our life has revealed to us? Did, did it reveal that our passion is to glorify God? Did it cause us to worship Him all the more? Did it cause us to boast about God all the more? Or did it cause us to boast about ourselves? It's a good way to look at our hearts and what we really treasure and what our passion is really, really is. Having this in mind, though, why was it that Abraham did not just receive the blessing, but even gave tithes to Melchizedek? So in contrast to the king of Sodom, very opposite, very different. Abraham received the blessing from Melchizedek, and he even gave tithes to Melchizedek. Which makes us see here how much Abraham refused the king of Sodom is the exact opposite of how much Abraham wants to honor the king of Salem. Melchizedek. Verse 18 to 20. At least. Yeah, verse 18 to 20, it reads, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. He blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and the earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave a tent to everything. Like, whatever I have, he gave a tent. And I want to show here some contrast between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. First, the king of Salem did not simply went out to meet Abraham. He brought food and wine. In other words, he was rejoicing in the victory and, and celebrating in the victory of Abraham as opposed to the king of Sodom who did not even thank Abraham. Secondly, if the king of Sodom came and said, Give me, King Melchizedek blessed Abraham. He didn't say, give me. He said, blessed be Abraham. Third, 
If the king of Sodom did not know God, Melchizedek knew that everything Abraham had were from God. He acknowledged that God is the most high and possessor of heaven and the earth. He was the owner of all things and everything that Abraham had actually came from God, even the deliverance from his enemies. In fact, blessing Abraham here is to bestow blessing upon Abraham, but blessing God in verse 20 is not to bestow blessing upon God, for he's already blessed, he's already found a fountain of blessing is overflowing. You cannot add to God, but to recognize God is the one who bestows all the goodness to his people. He's the benefactor. He's the giver. Yes, all his goodness to Abraham. I realize it might have been that Abraham learned from Melchizedek so that in verse 23, he also used God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Fourthly, Abraham used, refused to receive anything from King Sodom, but again gave tithes to Melchizedek. If Abraham found the king of Sodom as someone who might steal the glory of God, he, might, he found Melchizedek as key for his passion, key to him giving glory to God, that his worship will be acceptable to God. And secondly, by blessing Abraham, Melchizedek seems to guarantee Abraham of all the promises. This meeting, this blessing of Melchizedek to Abraham seemed to guarantee that all the blessings that God has promised will be accomplished. Now, while Melchizedek might not be a theophany, many would say that's not a Old Testament pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a real person. Many would say he surely prefigured Christ. He, sh he was surely displaying the Christ who would be coming. Everything that is being said here about Melchizedek, the writer of the book of Hebrews linked them to Christ. Now let me enumerate some of this. First, he said, King of Righteousness. That's Melchizedek. The name of Melchizedek is Righteousness. And peace means Salem. Salem means peace. King of peace. So king of righteousness and king of peace. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met with Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Now we have to understand that Hebrews 7 is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So king of righteousness and king of peace is a fitting description of the Lord Jesus Christ who solved the puzzle of the Old Testament. How can righteousness and peace meet? An expression in Psalm 85 verse 10. That righteousness and peace meet each other. God could only have peace with sinners relationally if righteousness will be uphold, which Jesus did when he paid the sinner's sins. So king of Salem and king of peace is a fitting description of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially 
when you look at Salem, actually it becomes Jerusalem later on. Like it's already a picture of the king of the Jews. Clear Lord Jesus Christ. Second, Melchizedek's mystery. We're not told of where he came from or he, where he went after. And again, a fitting picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews 7 verse 3. It reads, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That's Melchizedek. Third, the greatness of Melchizedek. Remember, Abram offered a tithe to him. You read that one in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 to 9, but we do not have time today, so you can read it on your own. We see that, that the greatness of Melchizedek reflects the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not from the ironic priesthood. If Abraham would truly worship God for the blessings he received from him, it will be through a priest who could stand before him, for him before God. And chapter 14, verse 19, Melchizedek is described as a priest of God Most High. This is the first time that the word priest has been mentioned in the whole Bible, Genesis 14. Yet it is already telling us that priesthood will have a very important role between the relationship of God and his people. That a priest will stand in between. After explaining why Jesus is from a greater priesthood, that of the order of Melchizedek, not from the Aaronic priesthood, because the Aaronic priesthood, the, the high priest will also offer an offering for his own sins. Jesus is not from that order. He is from the order of Melchizedek. The writer of the Hebrews wrote, Hebrews 7, verse 18 to 22. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and uselessness. It cannot bring anyone nearer to God. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. Through we draw near to God. This new hope, we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, it was not without a promise, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And if you look at Psalm 110, it's a quotation from Psalm 110. Particularly verse 4, we know that it says, You will be a priest from the order of Melchizedek. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is the guarantor of the new covenant. The covenant that we're standing on just as Melchizedek guaranteed Abraham the promises of God. Melchizedek was there to guarantee Abraham of all that God has promised to him. That's the implication of the blessing he gave to Abraham. After experiencing the promises of God, when God delivered his enemies to him, 
Abraham was led. Look at that. After he experienced these promises of God, God, Abraham was led to the guarantor of the promise. Here, it's Melchizedek. And I would agree, when Abraham was brought to the guarantor of the blessings, it was the greater blessing. The greater blessing then, when we respond to our life situation in faith, is we will be brought deeper into the truth that we are experiencing all this goodness of God because of Jesus, the guarantor of the new covenant. That the blessings we experience daily would just remind us that praise be to God, all these things we experience because our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished them for us. Why do we still have food to eat at this time of pandemic? In Christ Jesus, God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why can, why can we still be positive in everything that are going on around us? Because in Christ Jesus, the Bible says, all things work for our good that will only bring transformation to our lives. Why are we not afraid of the future? Because Paul says, no one... No one will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Every blessing that we experience from God will only lead us deeper into the guarantor of all this. This would lead us back to the cross. This would lead us back to Jesus. This would lead us back to the blood that he shed on the cross because he is ratifying the covenant. He's signing it. He's guaranteeing it. As 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we offer our Amen to God for His glory. Oh, what a truth that in all of our blessings, it's not just, we are not stopped in the blessings, we are led to the guarantor of the blessings. And there we worship God for his goodness. So all the blessings we receive from God should lead us back to Christ. They should lead us back to Christ. So do we stop with the blessings? Like when we were praying to God and then God answers our prayer and then we are so enjoying our blessings and do we forget God? Is that the way to honor God with our blessings? Or blessings... Lead us to a deeper appreciation that Christ has paved the way. Christ has paved the way for us to experience all of these blessings. So there is a good reminder, church, that we need to use our blessings rightly. And it is not just for our enjoyment, but also so that we would deepen in our worship of Jesus. It should result to thanksgiving. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 to 12. Paul said, he was talking to the Macedonians, or to the Corinthians, you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So your generosity will produce thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not simple, it's not supplying the needs of the saints. It's not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgiving. 
like Abraham, who said, no, no, in all of these blessings, I just want to glorify God. As it leads us back to Christ, on the other side of the coin, as it leads us back to Christ, it should also give us more confidence. Like today, as we are facing this pandemic, as, as we are led back to the guarantor of these promises, it should give us more confidence that God will accomplish all his promises in Christ Jesus. This brokenness around us is the way to the return of Jesus, where Jesus will renew all things. And that is guaranteed. That is guaranteed when Jesus died on the cross. Life situation could lead us to the promises of God. But most especially, a deeper worship into the guarantor of all his promises, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we respond in faith. So I want to leave you with a question, church. What will be your response to your next life situation? What will be your response to your next life situation? Are you going to respond in unbelief? Or are you going to trust God? And obey Him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You. Thank You for all Your goodness. Thank You, Lord, that You are a God who cares for us and has given us great and wonderful promises. Father, we pray that just as Abraham, in, in, in a situation so difficult, he responded in faith. Lord, may we also respond in faith and trust in You. Not that we get things, Lord, but that, Lord, we can show our trust in you. We honor you, Father. Bless your people, even as we are separated from each other. I pray, Lord, that every one of us will see you are present in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Cruciform Life Church Podcast. Check out more gospel-centered messages at www.cruciformlifechurch.org or subscribe to this podcast at Spotify.